in nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Grant us peace, O Lord, in our days, for there is no other hope fight for us, save but you, our God. The following is a reading from Father Alban Butler's Lives of the Saints. St. John Capistrano, Confessor. John, the father of this saint, was a gentleman of Anjou, who, going to serve in the army of the kingdom of Naples, settled at Aquila, and soon after at Capistran, a neighboring town, where he took a young lady to wife. Our saint was born at Capistran in 1385, and after learning Latin in his own country, studied the civil and canon law at Perugia, in which faculty he commenced doctor with great applause. By his fortune and abilities, he soon made a figure in that city, and one of the principal men of the town gave him his daughter in marriage. In 1413, a grievous dissension fell out between the city of Perugia and Ladislaus, king of Naples. John used his best endeavors to bring his fellow citizens to a peace, and carried on a negotiation for some time with success, for which he undertook some journeys. Those who were more violent in this quarrel, taking it into their heads, that he betrayed his citizens in favor of his former master, a party belonging to one of these factions, seized his person on the road and confined him in the castle of Brufa, five miles from Perugia. In this prison he had much to suffer, being loaded with chains and being allowed no other subsistence than bread and water. Seeing himself here abandoned by King Ladislaus himself, and from his own feeling experience, mediating on the inconstancy of human beings and the treachery and falsehood of a vain and sinful world, he began seriously to enter into himself and to become a new man. His lady dying in that interval of time, he resolved to embrace a penitential state in the holy order of St. Francis. Impatient of delays, he begged to be immediately admitted, but the guardian refused to send him the habit whilst he continued a prisoner. He therefore cut his clothes into the shape of a religious habit and his hair so as to form a tonsure. Obtaining his liberty shortly after, he went to Capistran and selling his estate with part of the price he paid his ransom and the remaining part he distributed among the poor. Then returning to Perugia, he took the habit in the convent of the Franciscans de Monte at Perugia in 1415, being thirty years old. The guardian, who understood how full he had been of a worldly spirit, the more effectually to try his vocation and to extinguish in him secular pride and self-love, ordered him to ride on an ass in a ridiculous dress through all the streets of Perugia with a paper cap on his head, on which many grievous sins were written in capital letters. This must appear a severe trial to a man of birth and reputation, but such was the fervor of the saint in his penitential course that it seemed to cost him nothing. He was moreover twice expelled the convent without any reason, and admitted again on very hard conditions. The perfect spirit with which he underwent all humiliations and austerities that were imposed upon him gave him in short time so complete a victory over himself that he never afterwards found any difficulty in the severest trials. Such was his ardor in the practice of penance that to those enjoined by his rule or by obedience he added the most austere voluntary mortifications. To prepare himself for the first communion, which he made after his general confession upon taking the habit, he spent three days in prayer and tears without taking any nourishment. From the time that he made his religious profession, he ate only once a day, except in long, fatiguing journeys, when he took an exceedingly small collation at night. For thirty-six years he never tasted flesh, 
accepted very little out of obedience when he was sick. Pope Eugenius IV, having commanded him in his old age to eat a little flesh meat, he obeyed, but took so very small a quantity that His Holiness left him at liberty to use his own discretion. He slept on the boards and took only three or sometimes four hours a night for his rest, employing the remaining part in prayer and contemplation, which exercises he for many years seemed never to interrupt but by preaching to the people or short necessary repose. It would be too long to relate the admirable instances which are recorded of his perfect mortification, obedience, and humility, and the most profound sentiment of contempt of himself, which made him delight in the meanest employments. His spirit of compunction and gift of tears astonished and strongly affected those that conversed with him. He said Mass every day with the most edifying devotion. By his zeal and ardent desire of the glory of God and the salvation of souls, he seemed in his actions in preaching another St. Paul. Wherever he came, by his powerful words, or rather by that wonderful spirit of zeal and devotion with which he spoke, he beat down the pride and obstinacy of hardened sinners, filled their souls with holy fear, and softened their hearts into compunction. At the end of a sermon, which he made at Aquila, against the vanity, dangers, and frequent sins of the world with regard to dress and amusements, the ladies brought together a great quantity of fine handkerchiefs, aprons, and artificial heads of hair, perfumes, cards, dice, and other such things, and made of them a great bonfire. The same was done at Nuremberg, Leipzig, Frankfurt, Magdeburg, and, other, and several other places. He had a singular talent at reconciling the most inveterate enemies and inducing them from their hearts to forgive one another. He made peace between Alphonsus of Aragon and the city of Aquila, also between the families of Oranesi and Lanziani, and between many cities which were at variance, and he appeased the most violent seditions. St. Bernardine of Siena established a reformation of the Franciscan order and was appointed by the general William of Castle in 1437 and confirmed by Pope Eugenius IV in 1438, the first vicar general of the observation of reformed Franciscans in Italy, in which office he continued six years from his nomination by his general in 1437 and five from his confirmation by the Pope. St. John was twice chosen to the same office, each time for the space of three years, and exceedingly promoted this reformation. By one sermon which he preached on death in the last judgment in Bohemia, 120 young men were so moved as with great fervor to devote themselves to God in different religious orders, of which 60 embraced his penitential institute. He inherited St. Bernardine's singular devotion to the holy name of Jesus and to the glorious Mother of God. The Marquisate of Ancona, Apulia, Calabria, and Naples were the first theaters of his zeal. He afterwards preached frequently in Lombardy and the Venetian territories, then in Bavaria, Austria, Carinthia, Moravia, Bohemia, Poland, and Hungary. St. John was often employed in important commissions by the popes Martin V, Eugenius IV, Nicholas V, and Calixtus III. The Council of Basel, which had been called by Martin V, assembled in July 1431 under Eugenius IV, and was in the first sessions approved by him till this pope, alleging that the place was at too great distance to suit the convenience of the Greek emperor and the oriental prelates, removed it to Ferrara in 1437. Those prelates whose obstinacy opposed this removal proceeded at length to an open schism, 
The Pope employed St. John in several important commissions to stem this evil, and many great personages, particularly Philip, Duke of Burgundy, to whom His Holiness sent the saint for that purpose, were withdrawn by his exhortations from the schism. The saint was sent, nuncio by the same Pope, to the Duke of Milan, to Charles the Seventh, King of France, and into Sicily, and his endeavors met everywhere with the desired success. He was one of the theologians employed by His Holiness at the Council of Florence in promoting the union of the Greeks. Certain vagabond friars called Frerats and Baroches, the remains of the Fratricelli, whose heresy was condemned by Boniface VIII and John XXII in the beginning of the 14th century, filled the Marquisate of Ancona with disturbances, till St. John, having received a commission from Eugenius to preach against them, entirely cleared Italy of that pestilential, seditious sect. Many parts of Germany being at that time full of disorders and confusion, the Emperor Frederick III, Aeneas Civilis, Legate, and Bishop of Siena, afterwards Pope Pius II, and Albert, Duke of Austria, the Emperor's brother, solicited Pope Nicholas that St. John might be sent into those countries that the force of his example, zeal, and eloquence might give a check to the overflowings of vice and heresy. St. John, therefore, was invested with the authority of Apostolic Legate and attended with one colleague, traveled by Venice and Ferrilli into Carinthia, Carniola, Tyrol, Bavaria, and Austria, preaching everywhere with incredible fruit. His sermons he delivered in Latin, and they were afterwards explained by an interpreter to those who did not understand that language. The like blessings attended his labors in Moravia, Bohemia, Poland, and Hungary. He converted in Moravia 4,000 Hussites. Roxana, the head of that party in Bohemia, invited him to a conference, but King Pogibrak, fearing the consequences of such a disputation, would not allow him the liberty. St. John was mortified by this disappointment and wrote a book against Roxiana. It would be too long to follow the saint in his progresses through the provinces above mentioned, although through Brandenburg, Poland, and Hungary, or to mention the honors with which he was received by electors and other princes, especially the dukes of Bavaria and Saxony, the Marquess of Brandenburg, and the emperor himself, who often assisted at his sermons. Mohammed II, having taken Constantinople by assault on the 26th of May, 1453, Pope Nicholas V sent a commission to St. John to exhort the Christian princes to take up arms to check the progress of the common enemy, which the saint executed with great success in several assemblies of princes of the empire. Nicholas V dying in 1455, and Calixtus III succeeding in the pontificate, St. John returned to Rome to receive the orders of the new pope. His holiness appeared more earnest than his predecessor had been to engage the Christians to undertake a general expedition against the infidels who were carrying their victorious arms into the heart of Europe, and he sent preachers to different parts to excite the princes to this war. St. John returned with ample powers to preach up the crusade in Germany and Hungary. Mahomet, after taking of Constantinople, counted the Western Empire is already his own, and looked upon himself as master of all Christendom, not doubting but he should soon plant the Ottoman Crescent in the cities of Vienna and Rome. He marched his numerous victorious army into Hungary, and sat down before Belgrade on the third of June in fourteen fifty six. King Ladislaus V fled to Vienna, but John Corvin, commonly called Hunietes, the brave Vevod of Transylvania, 
and governor of Hungary, who had so often beat the Turks under Emirath in Hungary, Transylvania, and Thrace, assembled his forces with all possible expedition and sent to entreat St. John Capistron to hasten the march of 40,000 crusades whom he had raised to his particular assistance. The Turks covered the Danube with a fleet of 200 ships of a particular construction for the navigation of that river, and had embarked on them an army of resolute veteran troops. Huniades, with a fleet of 160 sakes or small vessels, which were much lighter and better commanded than those of the infidels, entirely discomfited them after a most obstinate and bloody engagement and entered the town which stands upon the confluence of the Danube and the Save. St. John Capistron attended him, animating the soldiers in the midst of all dangers, holding in his hands the cross that he had received from the Pope. The Turks made several furious assaults upon the town, notwithstanding the slaughter of their bravest men was so great that they marched upon heaps of their own dead to the very walls. Thus at length they got into the town, and the Christians gave way before them. All things were despaired of, when St. John, appearing in the foremost rank, with his cross in his hand, encouraged the soldiers to conquer or die martyrs, often crying with a loud voice, Victory, Jesus, victory! The Christians, thus animated, cut the infidels in pieces, threw them down from the ramparts, and drove them out of the town. In the sallies which the Christians made, they slew the Turks like sheep, and on every side repulsed their most determined and experienced troops. Mahomet, flushed with the conquests and confidence of victory, became furious and omitted nothing after every check to reanimate his troops, till at length, having lost his best officers and soldiers and his own dearest friends, with 60,000 soldiers being himself wounded slightly in the thigh, and seeing the shattered remains of his great and haughty army, which he thought invincible, so dispirited that he was no longer able, either by promises of se or severity to make them face the Christians, shamefully raised the siege on the 6th of August, and leaving behind him all of his heavy artillery and baggage, and the greater part of his booty, retreated with precipitation. The next year he turned his arms first against Trebizonde, and afterwards against the Persians, though some time after he again fell upon the west, when the brave Huniandes was no more. The glory of this victory is ascribed by historians not less to the zeal, courage, and activity of St. John Capistron than to the conduct of Huniades. This great prince, who possessed the virtues of a Christian and all the qualifications of an accomplished general, was admirable for his foresight and precautions against all events, for his consummate knowledge of all the branches of the complicated art of war, for his undaunted courage in dangers, his alacrity, ardor, and cool presence of mind and action, and his skill in seizing the happy moments in battle upon which the greatest victories depend, which skill is so much the result of genius, improved by experience and deep reflection, that it may be called a kind of instinct, no less than the skill of able practitioners in physics, in discerning the fatal critical moments for applying powerful remedies in dangerous diseases, for strengthening nature in her efforts, or in checking, dissolving, correcting, and expelling morbid humors, etc., it is not, however, detracting in the least from the glory of this Christian hero to give equal praise to the zeal, activity, address, and courage of a religious man in whose authority, prudence, and sanctity the soldiers placed an entire confidence. After all, it was the finger of the Almighty which overthrew phalanxes that seemed invincible. God employs secondary causes, but in them his mercy and power are not less to be adored. 
The divine assistance in this happy deliverance was doubtless obtained by the prayers of the servants of God, especially of St. John Cabestron, whose name was then famous for many miracles which had been wrought by him. The brave Hunandis was taken ill of a fever which he had contracted by the fatigues of this campaign and died at Semplin on the 10th of September the same year. When he lay dying, he would absolutely rise and go to the church to receive the Viaticum, saying he could not bear the thoughts that the King of Kings should come to him. St. John Capistron never quitted him during his last sickness and pronounced his funeral sermon. At the news of his death, Pope Calixtus III wept bitterly, and all Christendom was in tears. Muhammad himself grieved, saying in his boast, there was no longer any prince left in the world whom it would be either an honor or a pleasure to vanquish. St. John did not long survive him, being seized with a fever, incurable dysentery, and bloody flux with the gravel. Whilst he lay sick in his convent at Willek or Villek near Sirmik, in the diocese of five churches, he was honored with the visit of King Ladislaus, the queen and many princes and noblemen. Under his pains, he never ceased praising and glorifying God, frequently confessed his sins, and received the viaticum and extreme unction with many tears. He often repeated that God treated him with too great lenity and would never be laid on a bed but on the hard floor. In this posture, he calmly expired on the 23rd of October in 1456, being 71 years old. When Willek fell into the hands of the Turks, his body was removed by the friars to another town where the Lutherans afterwards, having plundered the shrine, threw it into the Danube. The relics were taken out of the river by Illich and are preserved there to this day. Pope Leo X granted an office in his honor to be celebrated at Capistron and in the Diocese of Salmona. The saint was canonized by Alexander VIII in 1690 and Benedict XIII published the bull of his canonization in 1724. Sancta Ioannes Capistrane, Ora Pro Nobis, In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Amen.